The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Podcast One presents Rock Talk, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFond. Welcome to Rock Talk. I am your host, Mitch LaFond, and I have got a fabulous, fabulous episode for you. In it, you will hear stories about Kiss, Iron Maiden, Samson, Night Ranger, Journey, Whitesnake, and Ethel the Frog. Yes. No show can be complete without the new wave of British heavy metals, Ethel the Frog, being mentioned. You will hear from Doug Aldrich of the band Revolution Saints and Dead Daisies. Revolution Saints, of course, have a new album out called Light in the Dark. We talk about that. And a dog... Uh, Aldrich, the uh, guitarist, tells us about uh, how Whitesnake were plans. There were plans to re-record Slip of the Tongue, the uh, late, I guess, early 90s album, with him on guitar. And David Coverdale also wanted to re-record the uh, 1987 album with him on guitar. So Doug details that. Then there are stories of fisticuffs, people being punched out backstage. Hey, you know, we can't go wrong with uh, stories of, of bands punching each other out. Those are always good. Then we uh, head over to Steve Lynch of the band Autograph. He talks about his former lead singer and their new album called Get Off Your Ass, also out this month, October. And uh, he talks about Paul Stanley calling him up and saying, Hey, buddy boy, come and join Kiss. And so we talk about what happened there. So... All that great stuff. And if that wasn't enough, on the end of it, I have got Barry Graham Perkis. And some of you might go, well, who's that? Well, his name on stage, or his stage name, was Thunderstick. And he was drummer, or original drummer, one of the original drummers, if that makes sense, or one of the drummers for Iron Maiden and Samson. Like, whoa, okay. Those are some big names. So we talk about his time with Iron Maiden. We talk about... Bruce Bruce, which some of you might know as Bruce Dickinson, he's got a new album called Something This w- so, Sorry, Something Wicked This Way Comes. You might want to check that out. Just, just an incredible amount of uh, material in this episode. We cover pretty much the best of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and of rock and metal. So uh, enjoy that. And uh, now, of course, uh, Barry or Thunderstick is a drummer, and I just want—I just want to bring up one point, and and maybe you can head over to Twitter and and tweet me at Mitch Lafon, M I T C H L A F O N, and I'm just curious about this. I go to a lot of shows, and if you ever follow my Twitter or the Facebook, you'll see I post pictures and so on and so forth. And at these shows, a lot of them, especially with the legacy acts, they always seem to insert a drum solo. And my God, what could be worse than a drum solo? I mean, when you go see a, and I'll use the word again, legacy act, here are bands that have 20, 30, 40 years of career, have all kinds of greatest hits, have all kinds of rare gems, have all kinds of songs. You know, they have 10 albums, 12 albums, 20 albums. And instead of picking a song that's three minutes long or four minutes long and saying, hey guys, listen, Normally we'd put a drum solo here, but let's play this really rare track, and if some of you go to the bathroom, so be it, but some of you are going to get a kick out of this, so we're going to do this. But no, 
they give us the drum solo. Just why? Who has ever gone to a show, or let me put it this way, who has ever spent 150 bucks on a ticket and gone, man, I really hope there's a drum solo tonight, because, wow, like, I can't go home unless whoever's on drums gives me seven minutes of rat-tat-tat-tat-tat-tat, like nobody. So please, bands out there, legacy acts, you know, bands that have had the 30th anniversary tour and the 40th anniversary tour and the 25th anniversary tour, please, do us all a favor. Take your drum solos and shove them... Okay, well, don't do that. Just take your drum solos and leave them at rehearsal and come out and play that song that you've never played live and come out and play that song that we haven't heard in 25 years. Come out and play that song that is going to be on the next album. But please... Stop with the drum solos. They are inane and insane. And, well, I will say one good thing about drum solos. Being an older gentleman now, you know, almost 50, I do need pee breaks. And so they do provide that relief. But listen, I'll hold it in if you decide to play their air track. I'll wear adult diapers if I have to. But stop with the drum solos. Or, you know what? I'll tell you this. Look at what Whitesnake, David Coverdale, Bernie Mars, and Mick Moody were doing in the late 70s, early 80s when they would do the song Mistreated Live. Go to YouTube or pull out one of the early Whitesnake Live albums and listen to what they did during the song Mistreated. There was a solo spot if you want, but it wasn't a drum solo or a guitar solo. It was a musical solo musical interlude fantastic absolutely fantastic that i'll stick around for the drum solos please it's enough anyway uh let us get on to our first interview of the day from the revolution saints dead daisies and of course formerly of white snake and yes before anybody says oh don't forget yes dio it is the one the only guitarist extraordinaire yes i said it Doug Aldrich. We are speaking with Revolution Saints guitarist and Dead Daisies guitarist Doug Aldrich. And I, I just threw in guitarist twice because you're twice the guitarist that I am. So there you go. Uh, Doug, always a uh, pleasure. Come on. <laughs> come on. Come, yeah. hey, thanks for having me on, Mitch. Thanks, brother. It's good to talk to you again. It's, um, it's, always, it's always great to be on your show. And, and uh, you, you always put us all in the hot seat when we talk to you. It's pretty cool. I know. I try. I try to the get hot some seat. the hot seat. I try. I should call the show the hot seat. That'll be the the next one. Um, the hot seat with Mitch Lafon. The hot seat. It's pretty. And then go. It's pretty cool. It, it brings <laughs> me back to the uh, that Eddie Murphy uh, Saturday Night Live skit. He goes oh, too hot, too hot for the you know too hot for the hot tub. It'll be too hot for the hot seat. But um, it, it, what a perfect day to talk to you. First of all, the new Revolution Saints album is coming out soon, and it is yeah. absolutely fantastic. But I have been listening the entire day to a mix of Whitesnake, and there are some songs on there, like Love Will Set You Free, that you were part of on the uh, Forevermore album. Um, and yeah. I've been listening to the alternate mix that has sort of the, um, what, what, I don't know, what do you call it, a cappella beginning, or just the, the voice I started instead of before the guitar. Yeah, yeah. What a great, what a that great was, album. That's, thanks, man. That was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of the, the, stuff that David and I did together and you know I felt really like I I got my stamp on the white snake 
um, you know, the white snake history. And, and it was, it was cool because we, when we started writing and stuff, I, I felt like it's important to put out some new music because we were just playing hits for a while. And, you, and in order to kind of keep going, I talked to David about let's let's get, start writing, putting out some stuff, and then little by little we started to get on a roll, and um, that's the that's from Forevermore, Love Will Set You Free. It was um, the single that was the first single, and we just did the alternate mix. Just it's like as as David was, it's a bit of fun. We're just having a bit of fun there, you know, and we're just mixing it up. And we, so basically, I just tried to I, we had the original version, and. I thought it was really cool, but I thought it might be nice to just simplify the riff a little bit, make it a little bit more cleaner, more in the, you know, not quite as heavy sounding. And then we talked about, you know, we could just take this chorus part and stick it on the front and then kick straight in with the, with the groove. So that's kind of how that, that alternate mix came up, but it uh, came about, but it was really fun. And I am very proud of that stuff. Yeah. That's it, it's great. And, and, I love the original version, but that alternate mix version to me is like the one that should go on a greatest hits. I just love that version. It's, it's fantastic. Well, you know what's cool? Thanks, man. You know what's cool is, see, prior to that record, Forevermore, we did a record called Good to Be Bad. And the title and still good, good to be... be Bad. You did both. Yeah. <laughs> well, we had to do Still Good to Be Bad because David and his record company had a falling out, so we had to re-release it under a different thing or something. But... But the, we, the song Good To Be Bad, the title track, we were at my house and I started playing this blues riff and it happened to be in B, um, B minor. And it may have ended up being B flat minor on the record. But anyway, we, I was playing this thing in, against the drum machine and David started singing behind me. And my, the hairs on my neck just stood up. I was like, oh my God, that's unbelievable. It's just, so we knocked that song out. It was so cool. But we never played the song live, not once. And it, and it bummed me out. Really? I thought it was such a cool song. So then when we were working on Forevermore, we were, you know, I was compiling ideas and sending them to David and, and um, from my end. And, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to find a song that's got that kind of groove again. And um, it's a minor seven chord, which I kind of equated to the White Snake sound anyways a little bit. So that's, I just moved it down. Instead of it being in B flat, it was down in A flat level set you free it's in a little bit better range to sing in and it ended up being the single so that, that we had to play it you know so we played that live but i did finally get to play good to be bad with glenn hughes later and that was fun oh that's great that is great you, you know i mean it's a great way to start a revolution saints interview by talking about a geeky a, <laughs> we're geeking out on whites now. but uh, but since we're here let me let me finish with this and then we'll get over to revolution Saints because the album is great and and People have got to go check it out. I mean, it's just absolutely wonderful. But um, still good Thanks. to be bad. You re-recorded four songs, uh, taking Tommy Aldrich off the drums and putting Chris Fraser. Maybe that's the wrong sort of way to, to, to frame it. But but why were those drum tracks re-recorded with, with Chris Fraser and, and Tommy? Was that just a whole contractual nonsensey thing? Or, or was there just, hey, here's a new guy. Let's, let's make him part of the team. Like, what was sort of that thing? Um, that's a question you'd have to ask David. Cause I, I don't like, you know, for me, I, I don't really, I'm not, I don't like doing that kind of stuff. In All fact, right. All right. with, um, now you can ask him, but the thing is, is no, I mean, what I'm saying is I don't like changing, you know, if a, if a recording has certain people on it, it's, I don't see the point in, in changing it with other, with other musicians. I mean, like, um, 
there was a situation, and I and I'll say this with total respect because I, I love David, but there was a situation where he said, "Hey, you know, I'm gonna, I want to, I've got the mixes, I've got the masters for the sliding in record, and it never really turned out how me and Adrian wanted it. I want you to play on it, and you know, we're gonna do a remix and fix it up, and blah blah blah." And the same thing he said about some stuff on um, on uh, the '87 record, and I just I just was like, I don't. I don't want to play. I don't want to play on that stuff. I told him, I was like, no offense to you, but I really don't want to play on that stuff. It's, it's, it, I, it's just not where I'm at, you know? And, um, so I don't know if you ever, I don't think he ever did it. Or no, he, he never me. did it. And, and quite frankly, after the, the, the splashback that Ozzy and Sharon got for doing what they did on the Ozzy albums, I, I don't think that would have been a wise decision. You know, it would have sounded great. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think it would have been. A yeah, I, I, that was that one was a little different. The Aussie one because those they they were trying to get out of paying royalties or something. Where I know David would. He no, he's just trying always, to make it more kick ass. But or he wanted to, still. He just wanted to. He likes to dabble, you know, and and that's a good thing, you know. But I just don't like with with regard to with um, slip of the tongue. I actually I really like that record. How it is. I like it, you know. I mean, there's, it's it's got a vibe. It's some people go, oh, it's not as good as '87, but I kind of disagree. I think it's it's got its own thing. And people will say, you know, it's not true White Snake sound, but I mean, whatever. It was Steve I played his ass off on that record, and David sang great, and it's a cool band. But so uh, to answer your original question, I don't really know why that happened. It wasn't something that I'm I'm not a big fan of that myself, but I, you know, was that's what we were doing. So I did it. Yeah. You see, and, 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 and I'll say this for slip of the tongue. When it came out, I was like, uh Oh, but now I, I absolutely love it. But I still think that judgment day was just too much of trying to be still of the night part too, but whatever it's, you, you, just, you do. I do. I, I've always thought that it was sort of trying to be, and it could be a wrong perception, but I always thought like, Oh, he had a big hit with, with still of the night. So let's make something that has sort of the same sort of epic length and the same sort of like, you know, that's what I always felt it was not, not a necessarily a copy in terms of musically, but a copy in terms of spirit, you know, like, Hey, we have a six minute song that everybody loved. Let's make another six minute song. And it just, I don't well, know. Okay. I, I got a totally different take on it than that. I, I love that song judgment day because it reminds me it, it's a tip of the hat to Zeppelin cashmere, you know, which I, which I love. And I thought it was super cool how David did that. You know, that he, they they did a tip of the hat to Cashmere with the main riffs, but then they also went, you know, into a different classical realm than the way that Cashmere does. And then it's got the, the clean um the clean ascending verse part. I don't know, man. I I, I still of the night, there's only one still of the night, you know, as far as I'm concerned. But yep. but I get it. So everyone's got their opinion and we all but you see, that's what we'll makes music great. It. That's what. That's why you know. That's why when when you see people argue about the best Kiss album or the best Kiss guitars, or the, it's like that's great. Let them argue because it just means that we're passionate about our music, and that's why we're all here. That's why you're in a band because you were passionate about the guitar, and that's, so it's all it's all great stuff. But uh, let, let's get to this Revolution Saints. So yeah, absolutely. 2015, the first album comes out, and it was sort of one of these that was ordered by the record company, hey, would you guys make this album? And you had not really met, as far as I understand, and, and you made an album, and it turned out great. The fans loved it. The critics loved it. And he sort of went, hey, all right, let's, let's make a second one. 
And so here you are, light in the dark. Um, talk to me about the writing process and the recording process on this one. And, and where do you sort of see it going? Because it's hard enough to sort of have one startup band with the Dead Daisies and try to get club gigs and try to get out there. It, it, to have two startup bands is, is even more complicated. Yeah. So, so what's sort of the hope on this album? And, and did you have more say in it? Like, you know, did, they, did they sort of order this up like a pizza and say, hey, time for a second album? Or did they say, okay, you guys, let's see what you got? Well, it, I had, you know, actually prior to the first record, I was, really pretty, I was really close with Dean. Me and Dean did a lot of touring together. So we were friends. And I was originally asked to plant, it was his solo record, the first one. And then it, once Dean, Jack and I all were decided we we're going to work together and it was, it was going to be just us. Maybe it was, I think Neil, Sean and Arnell did little guest um, parts. I don't mean little, but they did great guest parts. But um, we decided, the, the record company decided, let's make it a, a, a band project. And that's what it was. It was a project because we were all busy doing different things. And, you know, it was hard for us to get together. We, we did actually jam for about four hours one time in Las Vegas where we were all we were all stuck there for a day. And we decided, hey, let's go in the rehearsal room. And we, we didn't play any of the songs from the record. We just jammed. And I, I've got it on, I recorded it. It was about four hours of just playing all kinds of like, it almost sounded like Band of Gypsies, what we were doing. It was pretty wow. cool, but very, very different. So then we never could get it together. We got some great offers last record to tour, great offers to, to come do some festivals in Japan and, and some UK, UK run and stuff. And we just couldn't get it together. It was, everyone's busy. Journey, Journey was, always, was always touring and Night Ranger was always touring. And I had basically holed up in Las Vegas and was family man, you know, trying to make up for lost time with my, with my son. And, um, just never happened. So then all of a sudden, you know, Dean finds himself in, in, he got in some trouble and it was very difficult for him. And, and, um, I felt bad for him, but I knew, you know, that he was, he was at a place where he, there's nowhere else to go, but up. And he, and that's what he's done. And we, we basically put the whole thing on ice. We didn't have any expectations. Just on a side note, I was just hopeful for Dean as, as my friend that he was going to, that he was going to find a way out, out of this. And, um, and sure enough, he's, he's done so well. I'm really proud of him. And, you know, a lot, a lot of people, I, I see comments sometimes when people make uh, about uh, someone in Dean's position and that, that may be, a fair comment sometimes, but in Dean's case, you know, everybody who you care about, if they're in your, your life, they deserve a second chance. And, and, um, otherwise, you know, we'd all be, nobody would, would be cool because we all make mistakes, you know? And Absolutely. So Dean took, owned it. He owned everything that he did and he, yep. and he, he, you know, stared down his demons and he's beat them and, He's in a great place. He's super ha happier than I've ever known, known him to be. He's so happy and positive and, and back to the old Dean. He looks great, singing great, playing his ass off on the drums. And he's super happy in the relationship that he was in prior to all this mess. And they're still together. And, and uh, I'm, it's just great, you know, but um, yeah. there wasn't any talk of, there wasn't any talk of anything ever really. We, we finally 
I think Alessandro Del Vecchio, the producer and the guy who wrote the majority of the first record said, we talked to Serafino from Frontiers and, and he said, well, what do you think? Or maybe Serafino said to him, what do you think about doing a follow-up? And we started, Dean and I especially started talking about it. Like, yeah, maybe we could do something. You know, I mean, I, I had, um, the Dead Daisies thing is, is um, up in, to this point has only been kind of half a year, six months or so, even less maybe, of where I'd be working with them. So I have plenty of time to do other things. And I said, I'm free in April and Dean was free. Um, so we could, we could do it. And we started kind of thinking about that and bouncing ideas back and forth because obviously we needed songs and now there was time to write together. So we did that. We, we pounded some songs out, put them back and forth, um, and started to get a feel for what the record could be. And it was like, this is actually pretty cool. Sounds like it could be really good. Then Jack came in at the end and said, yep, I'm in. Let's get together and, uh, and do this. So we, we all met up in Italy and we, we cut the record in about three weeks. Um, while we were there, we cut it live together. And it was great because there's nothing like making changes to a song or taking it, you know, you come in with this basic idea of a song, but then you go and you start playing it live together in a room and you go, Hey, this doesn't really work or let's try this, et cetera. And then you, you get to the point where it's like, that's cool. Then we immediately record it and, and we capture the energy. And that's, I think this record has a little bit more of a, of a, a gel to it where it, you know, it feels like, like we're really uh, into what we're playing. It's not like we somebody yeah. wrote the songs, wrote the songs and gave them to us. So we had all a lot of input. And in fact, actually, Mitch, it was funny because Dean goes, I didn't even know this, but he plays guitar and he sent me a, an MP3 of him playing, just riffing for like 30 minutes. And he goes, Hey, if there's anything in there that you want to use, you know, let me know and just feel free. I'm just kind of just, I was just jamming, you know? And there were three or four things in there that, that made it, into songs and one of them in fact was was the song freedom he was playing this kind of chunky drop d riff and so i kind of developed it how i would do it and when we got to italy i said do you remember that thing you you know that you sent me and i said well i got this out of it and it was originally kind of i was thinking of it kind of like uh in the air tonight or um uh, phil collins type of um vibe yeah i don't care i don't i don't care anymore as another song that kind of vibe this jungle beat thing and um i was thinking heavy keyboards in the front and no guitar and with the jungle drums but then the riff dean liked it so he was like come on let's jam on that riff so then the riff became the thing and then we, we built the song around that so we were we were into it you know we, we had a, a lot of say in it and we just send the stuff to serafino and he approved everything we sent him and uh that's now, right. There you have it. Now, yeah. l let me ask you about this because, you know, you just said that you sort of have six months off with, with the Dead Daisies, and Dean, of course, is has time off. Uh, Jack and Night Ranger, though, always, always busy. They're always on a package tour. They're always on a, you know, a festival date or something. Would you at some point, if the schedules don't match, just consider saying, okay, hey, Jack, listen, me and Dean are going to go. We'll get somebody else just to sort of sit in. I mean, was that, is that something you would consider sort of taking the, the band out, but without Jack? Um, so 
so long as Jack was cool with it. Okay. You know, if that's something that, if there was something that, uh, that came up that, that made sense for the band to move forward. And, and if, as long as Jack was cool with it, we'd get Jack's blessing. We could talk about it. You know, we, we actually have talked about that a couple of times because right. Jack told us, you know, guys, I, you know, we, we all agreed we want to play together. We did a show, as you know, probably we did the, yeah, the uh, Tears festival. Yeah. In April, I think it was. Yeah. So we, 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 it's, it's uh it's clear that we like to play together and, and we for our first gig and only having a couple of days of rehearsal we did i thought we pulled it off pretty well so i don't we weren't the best we weren't the best act of the day i don't think but we did good considering our first gig but um jack said hey guys i just want to let you know you know i'm going to be super busy with night ranger um so we got to really work around that schedule and we were like yep no problem that's that's fine with us but at the same time, I mean, he he's he mentioned a couple times. Look, you know, if there was something that you guys wanted to do, um, if I wasn't available, you could have my blessing in um, in moving forward. So we're you know we'll see what happens, Mitch. We got to see what kind of offers we get, and if it's if the fans want us to do it. The 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 reasoning for doing this record is not a was not really a, it's not a cash out situation. Really, in my mind, because you know, the, the, you don't. The budgets aren't. They're not there. Know, they're not there anymore. They're not. They're, they're not there. It's, it's not crazy. But the thing is, is we had a lot of fans that really loved that first record. Yep. They wanted the band to play live. We never really did. We never did. And um, this was kind of like you know we can justify this by saying, hey guys, we appreciate your support. Here's here's another record you can enjoy while you're you know on the train to to work or in your car or at night whatever. And. uh Fortunately, you know, the price of music has gone down so that it's not a big deal. If someone loves a band, they're going to go out and, and support the band and buy the record, even if it's, you know, if it's seven bucks or 10 bucks or whatever. So that was the one of the things to justify, because like you said, there's so many bands that, that, um, well, Maybe, actually, I don't know. Did you? Well, I was just thinking that because if you guys were to tour, the, the set list would just be spectacular. I mean, you'd have the first Revolution Saint stuff, you'd have the second Revolution Saint stuff, maybe a Dead Daisy song or two, but then some of the Journey greatest hits, some of the Dio greatest hits, some of the White Snake. I mean, it, it would be a, a, a cornucopia of fun. <laughs> you know, you, I well, that's true. I probably wouldn't. I wouldn't have anything. Uh, the only things that I really would want to play live are things that I was involved in, in terms of at least recording, but, but definitely, um, if not, if, if not recording, then definitely, you know, writing stuff that I wrote right. with David, I'm, I'm really happy with those. Only two songs that I wrote with Ronnie, but, um, but cause I mean, otherwise then you start going like, you know, Hey, we're going to go out and play last in line. And that doesn't, to me, doesn't make too much sense. Cause, um, yeah, I wasn't involved in that. Right. So, well, but, but there is a, there, but, there's a fine line between, you know, last in line is the set closer as a, you know, sort of a big bonus track or something. And just showing up there and going from the start, you're playing 12 DO songs. You go, yeah, okay, come on. <laughs> you know, there, there is, there is a slight difference in, in how it's perceived. Right. I mean, but, uh, yeah. but Hey, the forevermore the stuff way- would be great. <laughs> well, there's, I mean, just one or two, I, you yeah. know, something like that would be cool. But, but um, we did actually did we did um, we did level set you free in in um, Frontiers Fest it was fun. But the other thing that's, that 
I started to find out that's really fun is taking cover songs that you like, old songs that maybe haven't been played for a while and kind of, you know, freshening them up and, and putting your own spin on them. And, um, it's, that's always, a, that's always a thing too. Be, you know, take an old, take an old kiss song. I, I, I just, there's some of these old kiss songs that you hear them now and you're like, damn, that's like, that's wicked, man. I mean like yeah. that song, um, well, you did calling Doctor Love. Love. Remember calling Doctor Love? You did it on the on the Kiss tribute there yeah. for me. That was that was a kick-ass yeah. version. I believe you recorded that like in a hotel room in Tokyo or something. <laughs> no, but but check this out. That that song, Rocket Ride. Yeah. Oh, great song. That that's a killer. That's a killer riff. Or or um, or I don't know, man. There's a lot of that that stuff. Or that's, some yeah. of the more obscure, some of the more obscure Who songs. We're getting off the, the, the topic. Off the topic. The main right? thing is, the main thing is, is that um, we hope to do some touring. We, if we could do a, a couple weeks in Europe or a couple weeks in Japan, maybe do some. Uh, Dean and I and Jack had talked about, you know, maybe a one-off or some charity stuff that we could do in the U.S. to kind of, you know, put towards our, our you know, um, charities that mean a lot to us. For me, so, you know, something doing something for the kids. Um, is important you know yeah that would be cool um other than it would be very helpful other than um the saints and dead daisies what else is sort of occupying your time are you you still doing the the show in vegas or or like are there plans for anything no not so much i did when i came back off the road with daisies i did uh i did go out there and do a week just to to you know have some fun and and uh keep you know just so they could they could say hey doug's coming in and um i i i but i don't know how much i can do it at the moment because um you know my time off i i need to really also family's got to factor in because i got little kids so it's it's all it's great to go um do stuff, go on tour or go to, you know, I get offers to do trade shows and different stuff to work with some of the companies I work with. And I got it. Sometimes I got to say no, because I just really need to be a dad. You know, it's like, I'm at, I'm at, I'm at an age with, with my kids. I'm at an age and they're at an age where it's, it's, um, you know, like well, tell me that. about that. How difficult is is it to balance that? Because you know, fans will always just say, "Hey, get on tour, make an album." You know, do the. And a lot of times, a home life is 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 ignored, or they just they're not aware. You know, but how difficult is it to balance it? Because on one point, you got to be dad, and you want to sort of be home at five o'clock when they get back from school. But on the other hand, you need to keep your chops up. You need to keep the paycheck coming in. You need to keep uh, relevant. You like. That's got to be incredibly difficult to balance, right? It's a little, yeah, it's a little hard because, um, I, actually, I'm, I'm in a writing process right now, working on some some music, and I'm, I get on a roll and I'm like right in the thick of it, and I don't want to stop. And I, but I look at my clock and it's like time to pick up my boy from school, and of course I could just say to my wife, "Hey, can you go grab him?" the whole point is, is that she does that all the other time when I'm away. So now is the time that I need to do that. So it interrupts the flow a little bit sometimes, but I got to do it. I'm not, you know, the for David Coverdale was in a situation with like this when he had his son. And that's part of the reason I think he put white snake on hiatus was that 
he needed to be there and he, and he was. And then when, when we started, you know, getting the band back to being musically creative and stuff like that, you know, his son was around the age where my son is. And that's why we most of the time would record up at David's place, you know, cause it was, he need he really needed to be home and then we'd go on tour. So, but at, at that time I didn't have kids. So it's, it's difficult, but I mean, I'm blessed, man. I love it. I, I mean, there's nothing like, you know, seeing, seeing your, your kid achieve something and there's nothing for me though ever. I mean, guitar is just, I need it every day. So my chops, um, I have to work on it, but my chops will always be in a hopefully pretty good place because I just, I got to play guitar. I love it so much. Yeah, you can't. Now, so so Light in the Dark is out, of course, in October. What else is on the plate after this? Uh, are you working on a new Dead Daisies? Are you working on a solo album? Are you working on another project? Like sort of what's the next step? I've got... I got a few things I want to accomplish, but I'm, I am in a writing mode for the daisies. And, um, and I've, I've got another thing that I'm writing for them that is, has, it's pretty exciting that, um, I can't really say it about it yet, but, but I'm just basically in a creative mode. And, and another thing that happened was, uh, that Keith St. John and I have been getting together and we have a record already, already written for burning rain Four, the fourth one. And we got together the other night. We listened to some of those things and we, we discovered that we had a whole bunch of other new, brand new ideas that we, we were kind of wanting to show each other. And um, I all of a sudden got super excited about getting that together next year. So first thing is um, there's Dead Daisies is planning on going in the studio at the end of October. And um, that is to make a new record. And um, that's all that's on the books right now for Dead Daisies. But uh, there will definitely be some time at the beginning of the year where I'll be um, able to to focus on Burning Rain. Yeah, and that um, 2013 album, Epic Obsession, was absolutely uh, spot on. I mean, that was a great, great album. And um, what was? Didn't you cover Cashmere on that one, or wasn't that one of the bonus tracks? Um, yeah, it yeah. was. It was a bonus track, and it and it was um, it was it was just an old demo that Keith and I, we jammed on and um, we just uh, mixed it basically, you know, and that, that's what it was. We were looking for bonus material. Now we actually got, and we've got so many, we've got so much music um, that we could actually, <laughs> we could, we'd have plenty of extra stuff for sure. Well, yeah. But um, there's always, you know, people sometimes, Mitch, sometimes people will go, man, Doug, you're, you know, you're, you're into, he's one of the guys that's in too many bands and all this stuff. They say that periodically about some of us, but I mean, I was dedicated. I've been dedicated to every band I've been in um, and full time as much as I could, like Whitesnake. It was full time for, for 11 years plus. And I did squeeze in that Burning Rain record simply because Serafino said, I've been waiting for eight years for this thing. I need it. <laughs> so I, I had to get that record done on, on weekends at home and, and um, at night when, you know, when I wasn't working on Whitesnake after midnight, I'd work on Burning Rain for a couple hours. So we got it done, but it came out and I couldn't support it because Whitesnake went on tour. So once I got freed up from Whitesnake, I was really happy to have some of these I'd get offers to do this or that, and I couldn't do anything. I was always busy. And once I got freed up, it's been really nice for me to to 
experiment a bit with different types of things and learn i've learned a lot because dead daisies is quite a bit different from revolution saints which is different from burning rain so and there's yeah you know joe bonamassa goes out and does a black country and he's got his solo thing he uses a project with this singer or that singer and then he's got an acoustic record so i mean there's room to do stuff and as long as the fans are there i'm I'm happy to do it yeah and 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 I've always felt that that's an unfair criticism when they say, well, this guy's been in three bands or ten bands. But that, that's the nature of the business. I mean, you know, unless you're uh, Gene Simmons, you got to work to, to support your family. Well, also, some, <laughs> you and, some, and sometimes you want, you want that change, too, sometimes. sometimes. I mean, Eddie Van Halen never did a solo record. But I don't know. Maybe he just he didn't need to. But you look at guys like Eric Clapton, you know, he, he was in he was in the Yardbirds. He was solo. He was in Blind Faith. He was in Derek and the Dominoes, and he was in Cream. So I mean, there you go. There's a, a guy, Eric Clapton, is one of the greatest guitar players of all time, and you, some people would call him a journeyman. So that's that's fair. Yeah, and but you I also mean, look at it too. You're you're doing Bad Moon Rising, and and it's it's it has a little bit of heat, and people are loving it. And then Ronnie James Dio phones, and what are you supposed to say? No, I'm not going to come. Of course you're going to go. Well, right? actually, <laughs> you know what happened. What happened with Ronnie that was uh, initially I met Ronnie in in 1989, and he asked uh, Grover Jackson told me, "Hey, Ronnie's looking for a guitar player. Why don't you check it out?" And at that time, I really, you know, I was hoping my very first band was going to make it, and we, that would have been my only band if it was my choice. It was Lion, and. Um, we, we we had a record out, but we were on a bad contract and trying to get off of it and did this and that to show that we could. And But it still wasn't happening. Meanwhile, Ronnie offered me the gig. And um, I just, I thought about it. And I wanted, I was grateful and thought, and I thought it was really cool. But it, I was just like, man, I got to give this lion thing. It's, I got to, I, I got to, I can't strand, leave these guys stranded, you know, without a guitar player. I felt really loyal about it, and I—that's why I didn't do it that that time. Then the music business, you know, I found out there's things that are out of your control, and especially when you're like me, I'm just a simple guitar player. I'm, I'm not a businessman. I don't know about all kinds of stuff. I still don't. I I pay people to, to let me know what to do about that. But later on, I found out that you know the business is is not as easy as as you could as you think it should be, and so when Ronnie was looking for a guitar player again. I had already done a whole bunch of different things and was ready to settle down. And I did for, with Ronnie for, for a little while. So for a while. Yeah. Let, let me ask you well, one, one lion while. question here, because since you brought up lion, uh, they had a song on the uh, transformers movie back in 86, the uh, transformers theme song uh, produced by Richie yep. wise, who's also done cheap trick and others. Were you part of that, of, of the formation that did that, that theme song? Yeah, there was only one real formation of Lion, okay. and that was with me, me, Cal, Jerry Best, and Mark Edwards. And we, me and Cal co-wrote that. We, we took the original theme, and then we, we co-wrote the rest of the song um, for the guys, and then we recorded it. So it was like we had there's four writers on that song. So, but, but, but how does this cool, band you know? get, get? How how does this sort of band out of L.A. that 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 sort of nobody knew get on to a major motion picture with with Richie Wise producing that that's got to be a great story. Well, we 
the, the truth, the truth of the matter is, is that lion was a little bit different than your typical LA band. We Mark, Mark Edwards is the one who started it, the drummer. And Mark was in Steeler with Ingve and, uh, was when Ingve's first band, they, he found Ingve with Mike Varney, and they got Ingve over, and they formed Steeler around Ingve, Mark on drums, and Mark was awesome. He was like a cozy pal type of player. Um, so then they break up. He he finds this singer Cal Swan, who's from Britain, and was in a band called Titan, which is part of the new wave of British heavy metal, with, along with Saxon and Tigers of Pantang and Girls School and all these bands, Motorhead. He he wanted to come to L.A. and make this band with Mark, and they asked me to play guitar. Uh, long story short, we were doing really well in the clubs and had a good buzz, and we'd always sell out. You know, we wouldn't play all the time, but when we did, it was big. And but we got passed on by everybody because we weren't like a typical L.A. glam type, you know, American rock. We were more influenced by bands like Thin Lizzy and, and White Snake, early White Snake. That, which is how I found out about White Snake, but I told you that in the past was from Cal. So um, we got passed on by everybody. In fact, we did a showcase for um, for Don Arden from Jet Records, and he's like, you know, you guys are really good, but you're just not evil, evil enough for my label. You got to be, you got to be more evil. And I'm like, come on, man, somebody give us a break. Finally, we get this contract from Scotty Brothers, which is a subsidiary of Epic Records, and. They, they, we got the contract. We went in the office, met the executives, and it's like, okay, guys, here we go. We got this. We had um, a group of songs that were really good, we thought, and we took the contract that they offered us to our attorney, and he immediately said, if you sign this, I'm going to have to quit because you guys won't make any money to pay me, So I, I'm, and I'm serious. So we got into a little bit of an internal debate about, should we sign this deal? And I was one of the ones who said, let's do it, guys. I mean, we got this record. Let's go in and we'll make a record. We'll figure it out later. I mean, if our music is undeniable, it's going to be undeniable. So we, we signed it and we went in the studio and racked up a huge bill. And they, they actually got an advance from Epic as well. So they were making money from both ends, from, from their parent label and from us. And then when the record came out, they didn't do anything with it. They, they wouldn't put us on tour. They wouldn't do anything. No ads. Anything that we got, we got a video done because Epic liked it and they, they made a video for us, but they had all kinds of other stuff going on. What did happen was we, we had a Japanese label that pushed us and um, we ended up doing really well as a proper band would, you know, if you, if you, if you get pushed. Get pushed right. So that's, that, that's, really, that's really what it was, is that um, the band could have happened, but we signed a bad contract. But there really was a, there, there was trouble in Angel City. I, in fact, let me let me since we've got into <laughs> right yeah. since, since we got into this, uh, uh, let me ask you this because you do Lion, you go you go on the Sahara record as a guest guitarist. You do Hurricane, uh, Bad Moon Rising, and none of the bands are achieving the success of a Def Leppard or of a Kiss or you know they're they're just sort of doing what it does. At some point, do you look at yourself in the mirror and say? Is this going to happen, or or do I have to go be an accountant? Like, like, was did you ever have that moment where you just went, you know, I've tried, but it, it's here. I'm, you know, it's not working. Like, it's not. I'm not Kiss yet. Did you did you have that moment no, of doubt? I, no, I didn't really. No, I, really, I never thought about it that way. I I wasn't looking at it like you know that, um, 
Hurricane. You know, I, I joined Hurricane because finally, after I passed on a bunch of offers, Ronnie, Slaughter, a couple other things, um, because I wanted to be loyal to my band. Then the band finally did break up for real because the drummer got injured in a motorcycle accident. So the, our manager also managed Hurricane. He said, "Hey, you want to want to work do a record with those guys? They're gonna they can, you know, they're, they're looking for a guitar player and." You, we, you, they're offering this kind of money and it'd be good for you to, you know, to get out there. So I did it. I had a blast with them on tour. We, it was my first time touring. So I wasn't thinking about like whether we were as big as Def Leppard. I didn't even care. I was just happy to be playing guitar in Florida or wherever. But, um, and House of Lords is a session. I mean, I'm, I'm not being, I'm not trying to rationalize anything. I just never, I, I was just happy to play. And I was getting offers for work and I was, I was happy about it. Um, I never thought of myself as, you know, the Def Leppard guy or I, never, okay. I, so I you, basically just enjoy playing. So you were, you were you know, the, you were, you were a happy working musician. You weren't one of these guys that if you didn't reach the top of the mountain, it wasn't worth it. So you were just like, no, Hey, I got a gig this week. I'm good to go. That's, that's yeah. Of, and okay. I, I, but I, but, and also I just, I just didn't really need much. I mean, I would, I, I was single. I didn't have a huge overhead. I could, I was, I had um, a little bit of money because I would teach guitar in my, most of the time, unless I was, I, I guess around that time I started touring, I started backing out of the teaching a little bit, but, but um, I didn't really, uh, I've never had a situation where I'm like, I think I, I'm just, I'm done with this. You know, I don't, I'm not at the place where I want to be. Because really, I'm still not at the place I want to be, and it's not because of success in terms of what band I'm in. It's because of of I haven't written my best music yet, or I haven't. I'm definitely not as good of a guitar player as I hope to be at some point. That's and, funny. Um, That's funny you only, say that because every musician says that. You know, it doesn't matter if you're sitting down with Paul McCartney; they still go, "I still haven't written the, my my best song yet." It's like, well, yeah, you have. You've written <laughs> yeah, quite a few, but. So, yeah, you know? he's written some <laughs> right no, but the, the only time the only time i actually the, other, the only it's the musician's conundrum music. or whatever right it's like my next one is going to be the great one it's like well you've, you've done pretty good you know uh you know all those songs on forevermore and, and, are pretty good yeah i mean forevermore and good to be bad i'm really proud of it i mean there's nothing wrong with it there's just the the music industry doesn't support music as much as it used to so i mean you, you know like you said there are times when you you have an offer to do something and you take it because of course you'd rather, you know, just stay home and be in one band only, but you take the offer because, you know, you do need to make enough money to take care of. I've got, you know, four people I take care of. So, but, um, the one thing that did happen recently was I was, it was before Daisy's tour last or earlier this year. And I was, I was like, we need to, I need to do a little cleanup around the house. I'm going to just, I haven't done, I hadn't done it for years, but I, I was like, I'm going to paint the door. I'm going to paint the front walkway. I'm going to um, do this and that, and, you know, start doing some home improvement before I leave. And I painted the front door and my, my boy came and he goes, dad, you really, you know, you're, you're a really good painter. I mean, you could, you could actually just stay home and be a painter. And that's because I mean, you're really good at it. And I was like, you know what? he's right. I actually could, I could stay home and be a painter and be a dad, just strictly a dad, but I would go crazy without playing guitar. <laughs> he, so he's not, right. But you grounded him anyway for saying that you went, Hey, none of that. 
<laughs> I'm a guitarist. Well, stop he, it. <laughs> the thing is, the, the thing is, is that he does. He he knows my music. He's seen me on stage a, a bunch of times and all that stuff. And he and he and he really loves. He loves music. He loves it. But it comes down to it, man. The kid just wants his dad around. That's what it is. And uh, and I've got to balance that. So I. I, um, of course I'm not going to stop playing guitar, but it's not really about the money. It's about that. I, that that I need to play guitar to to, to be, I got to play guitar to be complete, you know, to, to be a a complete, I wouldn't be myself if I didn't have that. Yeah. And and this is going to sound strange, but I, I sort of feel the same way about interviews. I mean, I've got like 30 in the can that I haven't gotten to yet that I haven't had a chance to use. And yet I booked one tonight and I booked one tomorrow and I booked two on Friday and I booked two on Monday. I just, I, 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 I gotta do it. You know, you just, you just gotta do it. And, uh, you know, Hey, that, that is your me time. That's the thing, man. Yeah. You know, people go, well, when, when, when do you have any time to do your, do your stuff? And it's like every day when I play guitar and that's for you, probably the same thing, man. Do it. You're doing your thing and you're, and you're happy to do it. Oh, I love it. I love it. I, I just love talking to people. I love to listen. I'm a music geek. I mean, I, you know, I spent the afternoon for this interview. I put together a 40 song white snake playlist because I had nothing else to do. And I just, I just, I love sort of like taking a puzzle and figuring out how a 1982 song can fit together with a 2006 song. And it's completely ridiculous, but that's what I do. You know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Anyway, anyway, you know that's, 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 that's why we love you, man, because you're passionate. Yep. That's oh. why we love you. And partly crazy, but passionate is a good way to say it. <laughs> uh, and then uh, you know, just that last thing on, on the Hurricane album, um, Kelly Hansen. Did you know at the time that he was just going to be like this guy in Foreigner? Because, he, you know, they, everybody says, Vinnie Vincent saved Kiss. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Kelly Hansen saved Foreigner. There's no denying that. And he, he's such a nice guy. Such a great yeah. voice, uh, a great cook too. Believe it or not, uh, just... I believe it. I've seen him. I've seen him on TV doing it. Yeah. No, I, uh, Kelly is um, Kelly's. He's so talented, and I, I, I remember um, because Mick Jones's brother was tour manager for White Snake in 2004, and I, and I actually we had gone. He had been in in LA, and he went down to this rehearsal to see Corner Guys. Uh, and to see his brother, and he said, "Hey, do you want to come with me to um, to the rehearsal?" So I, I, I don't know. Normally, I would never do something like that, but I went with him, and I saw them jamming, and, and uh, met the guys, and I said hi to Kelly. I hadn't seen him for a while, and then when we were on tour later that year, he said they decided to change singers, and they're thinking about this guy or Kelly Hansen, and I was like, "Wow, that's." It could be pretty cool, actually. I don't know. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, haven't, I haven't worked with Kelly in a number of years. It's been like it has been like twelve, fourteen years, something since I'd worked with Kelly. But I knew he was a great singer. I didn't know how well he'd fit in that band, though. To be honest with you, I'm not going to say that I knew that. But he fits perfectly. Oh, totally. That's, I mean, a, that's a tough thing for a he, singer, and Kelly's he's Kelly's redefined that voice. band. He's helped redefine them. There, there, there are now. Two very distinct eras of Foreigner, and Kelly is the leader of, of and I mean no disrespect to Mick Jones, I mean no disrespect to Lou Graham, obviously, but he has really made that band relevant in, in today's touring market, and it's great anyway. So they, I just wanted to throw that yeah, in there. Yeah. I mean, the album you did with, with them, Slave to the Thrill, is, is fabulous, but that first album, or the, the, the 88 album, Over the Edge, wow, that is 
top, yeah. top, top quality. Yeah, it is. And but I want to tell you a story about Kelly because me and Kelly didn't. We never really got along that great when we worked together. We we always rub each other the wrong way a little bit, and um, not not on purpose. It was just naturally like we didn't. We just didn't get along that well. But I I liked him. He was funny. We used to. We all had bikes. And we'd ride motorcycles together, and, and but periodically on the road something would happen, and me and Kelly get into it. And one day. And this is a testament to Kelly, how strong his voice is. One day we got in a fist fight and we were swinging hard and I got hit a few times in the head and he got hit in the neck, right in his throat with my fist hard. I remember that. He, he, I couldn't believe how he sang his ass off that night better than almost the night before, you know? And ever and I'm telling you this because Foreigner is vocal, is vocally very challenging. Yeah. Hard. It's a hard gig. If you if you look at the vocals on um, Jukebox Hero, how it starts off low and then it goes way up high and starts, it's almost screaming it by the end of it. If you do that four nights a week, that's pretty hard. Not to mention a whole set. And Kelly's, he's he's just he just uh, God given. He's given. Talent. Now 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 tell me the story ends well though. You and Kelly get along. Like if you went to a foreigner show tomorrow, he'd invite you backstage, right? Yeah, I, okay. I would just go backstage. I just I, last time I saw him backstage, I he was he was like you know trying to figure out which pants to wear and stuff. I'm like, the ones you have on look the best. Those are, that looks great. What are you what are you worrying about? I, I don't know. I was, I was like, again, Kelly, you're getting on my nerves, man. Pick pick the pants. <laughs> the ones you got on are great. But no, Kelly and I we we've seen each other many times, and and um I I have a huge respect for him as a singer obviously and a songwriter and a person i'm glad i'm very happy for yeah. him and he deserves it so yeah. Yeah. good and, on him and, and and you know what i wouldn't mind seeing either revolution saints and or dead daisies opening for for foreigner i think that would be a fun package that would be just a fun package you know uh both you know bands, what revolution cool. saints revolution yeah. saints would that would fit really well wouldn't it i mean it would, would just be yeah. sort of that journey-ish vibe uh, not you know, and then, yeah, yeah. Wow, it would be a melodic rock like event of like three hours of just like these great melodies, these great vocals, and great players from from Jeff Pilson to you to Dean to to Kel. Wow, you know, let's make that yeah. happen. <laughs> make a call, could that you? Could, like... Call Kelly, uh, Kelly, I should say, Kelly, Kelly. Uh, make make that happen. That's that's my that demand. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. All right. Thank you, Doug. It's, it's been it. a pleasure. We we started off with White Snake. We finished with Foreigner, and I think we talked about your album somewhere in the middle. <laughs> Not too sure at this point, but yes, yes, we did. And it's it's coming out October thirteenth, and yeah. it's uh, it'll be, for the people that like this first one. I think you'll you'll like this even even more. We we definitely um, we got on a good roll and had a lot of fun making it. It was cool. So yeah, I hope I hope people like it. And I, I will admit this uh, publicly. I, I have, uh, I, I was given a, an advance back in July, and I've had what, oh, cool. uh, so July, August, September. So I've had like four months of, of listening to it, and I haven't finished listening to it. So that's that's how good it is. That after four months, I'm not like, all right, all right, it's enough with this. No, I still need to listen to it because it's really, it's well put together, really well put together. Thank you, Mitch. I really appreciate it. We 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 uh, we all do. We appreciate what you do for us and uh, for the music scene. Thank you, bro. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Doug. Always a pleasure. And and when you talk to Noel, tell him that I said hi. 
he doesn't know me, but um, yeah, I felt no, like, you know, after, after, after reading his book, I felt like I was there, you know, during he, all that time. It was cool. Well, we'll give him a plug. Noel E. Monk, Running with the Devil. It's a, the story of Van Halen. Uh, if you haven't read that book, that is, that's a real rock book. That's, that's top quality right the, there. The, um, when I was on tour with Brian Tishy this year, he read that book in, in like 36, I think he read it in like 36 hours in between gigs and flights and traveling. He couldn't put it down and he kept telling me about it. So finally I had to buy it. I read it. It took me about a, a, yeah. almost a week or something, but it's just like, you can't put it down. No, and you know what? People who like Van Hemp. People say that all the time. Oh, you can't put, and it sounds sort of, excuse the language, bullshitty, but this one, you know, I get a lot of books to do these interviews and you flip through them and you go, okay, but I read the first chapter and I, and it really just sucks you in. It really does. It, it, it's really well put together, well, well written, and the stories are laid out very clear. It's, yeah, w- well done. And so I understand why Brian went through it, and I understand why, because you really, it, it's, a, it's, it's a must read. So, voila. Well, anyway, Mitch, thanks again, bro. Yes, yeah, sir. Merci beaucoup. Merci, bonsoir, and uh, see you uh, hopefully on the road uh, soon. Sounds good, brother. Take it easy. Cheers. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. Hey, Mitch here. And uh, are you in the market for a new car? And want to see what others have paid? Well, in order to feel confident and comfortable that you are getting a fair price, you need pricing context. Information that empowers you confident. With True Car, you will see what other people in your local market paid for the car you want. From there, you can connect with a local True Car certified dealer and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Using True Car, you can easily find the car you want. True Car will show you what other people in your area paid for the car you want. Now that you know what a fair price is, you can feel confident. Once you register, you'll see real pricing on actual inventory. This is a competitive pricing offer to you only by True Car Certified Dealers for an actual vehicle on their lot. It's pricing you'll see before going to a dealership so you can feel confident when you show up. With True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. True Car customers are more likely to enjoy a fast buying process when they connect with True Car certified dealers. True Car users save an average of $3,000 off MSRP. When you're ready to buy, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Welcome back, and a a very, very big thank you to uh, Doug Aldrich of Revolution Saints and, of course, the Dead Daisies. Uh, New Revolution Saints album is called Light in the Dark, and I also spoke, by the way, to drummer Dean Castronovo. If you go back to the previous episode that featured Gene Simmons, Dean is on there. I had a whole bunch of great stories. Uh, As far as what Doug was saying... Boy, you know, Whitesnake recutting albums like Slip of the Tongue and, and just re-recording that. You know, listen, as a fan who who's a completist, more Whitesnake is good Whitesnake. You know, just like more Scorpions is good Scorpions. More Metallica is good Metallica. Um, but, boy, there's a certain um, 
I don't want to say it's immoral, but but you, you know you don't 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 mess with the past. Uh, but hey, listen, I, I will freely admit, if uh, Doug Aldrich and the band and David Coverdale had recut or reworked "Slip of the Tongue" or the '87 album or any other stuff, I would have bought it and probably would have bought two copies of it. So who am I to judge? Anyway, uh, let us move on to our next interview. It is Steve Lynch of the band Autograph. They have a new album out called Get Off Your Ass. And I did, actually, earlier this year in the spring. I went to, I got off my butt and uh, headed over to the Brass Monkey in Ottawa, Canada to see the band. And it was one of those shows where I had been invited by the bar owner. He said, oh, come on down and check him out. And, you know, listen, I heard, you know, the big hit on the radio for autograph. I mean, it plays on, on, on radio quite a bit still. And I thought, oh, okay, why not? You know, what the heck? Let's, let's go check these guys out. And I was literally blown away. They are a lean, mean rock and roll machine. Absolutely fantastic live. The, the, the guitar playing, the singer, the, the, everything was just great. So I do encourage you to check out the new album, Get Off Your Ass. And I do encourage you to check out this interview with Steve Lynch. Uh, apparently I'm running a uh, Lynch um, month here in, in October. I had George Lynch last week, Steve Lynch uh, this week. I, I will go find a Lynch for, for next episode, I, I guarantee it. Anyway, anyway, without further ado, uh, a guitarist who almost was in Kiss... It's true. Paul Stanley called him. Um, was almost in Kiss. Here is from Autograph, the one, the only, Steve Lynch. We are speaking with Steve Lynch of Autograph. A pleasure to speak with you. Pleasure to be here. All right. That's really nice to meet you. Yeah. Now, um, I had um, mentioned just before we got started that I saw you at the Brass Monkey in Ottawa. And for anybody who hasn't seen an autograph show or who is contemplating, oh, should I go or not? The answer is you must absolutely go see this band live. You guys are just absolutely a mean machine on that stage. Um, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. We have a lot of energy, and we're really excited about the new album and playing live again. So, so it's all working out very well for us. We're really happy about it. Yeah, so let, let's start with that. Now, uh, in 2016, you had an EP come out that was called Louder, but now we've got Get Off Your Ass, which is going to be a full-length album coming out in October. Uh, talk to me about getting back into the studio and putting together a collection of songs that form an album, and what that's like for you. Well, it's it's been a process over the last uh, year, and... Um what we did was write each song singularly, um, you know, just, just tossing out ideas back and forth and everything, and then kind of building a lot of it over the phone because um, I was uh, living in Seattle and I'm, I'm living down in Tampa, uh, Florida. Um, and Randy lives in um, Atlanta, the bass player. And um, then Simon and Mark, they both live in LA. So we were tossed around ideas, you know, when we were writing the songs and then, uh, we had played parts like guitar parts and stuff like that uh, over the phone to each other. And, and uh, so it was kind of a long distance uh, way that we put everything together, but it, it worked out very well. It was nice to go back into the studio, start laying down tracks, keeping the old autograph, you know, choruses alive, the melodic uh, part that autograph uh, was known for and the, the hooky choruses, but then also putting a harder edge to it. 
and we're turning down a whole ship now, and we're not using keyboards at all. So it's definitely got more of a of a, of a of a ballsy edge to it now. Yeah. Now, and, and talk to me about the new singer as well, Simon. Uh, you know, autograph and and most bands, the singer is sort of the signature sound or part of the signature sound. Uh, talk to me about the challenges of bringing in a new singer. And by the way, like I said, I saw you in Ottawa. He is absolutely phenomenal. What a great choice you made in picking him. But uh, yeah, just talk to me about yeah, that. Yeah, he's a little he's a little bit uh, more blues based, but he came in and fit, filled uh, Steve Pluckett's shoes very well. He sang the other. The other song's great, and uh, you know the old songs that we originally did, he sings those great, and then he also uh, puts a, a little bit of a new edge on them, which I really like, you know, and uh, a little bit throatier, and, and I, I like just the way that he fit in and, and really sang on the old songs, and then, of course, the new songs, he just had, he just puts a different flair on the whole thing, which is really good, and, and it, it worked out really well, the way, the way that it happened, because we saw... You know, me and Randy were checking out uh, different singers on on YouTube, and uh, we saw his video, and we went, "Wow, that's that guy would fit perfectly." And so, through a couple of friends, we uh, hooked it up and uh, got together and rehearsed with them, and we knew right away that he was going to be the one. The band wasn't inactive for for many many years. Uh, around 2014, you decided to fire it up again. Uh, talk to me about yes, that's that. Correct. Yeah. Talk to me about yeah, that so, decision. Well, um, Randy and I had had met together at the. Uh, the NAM show down in LA, the National Association of Music Merchants, and uh, we hadn't seen each other for many years, and we kind of started tossing around the idea of, of possibly doing a, um, you know, a reunion, and we thought that that would kind of be fun to go out there and do it again, and and uh, you know, Kenny was involved, the uh, the original drummer at that time. Um, unfortunately, um, I don't know if you heard the news about him, but uh, yes, he passed you know, away he earlier a, this he, year. Yes, he he had some health issues, and then. Um, he passed away earlier this year, um, just a few months back, actually, and uh, and that's that's very unfortunate. And um, but anyway, we we got a different drummer and uh, Mark um, Wieland from uh, Switzerland, but he lives in LA, and and you know, of course, uh, Simon's originally from Brazil, and so we kind of have have, have an international band now. But um, you know, the way the whole thing came together and the way that we went into the studio and did this, it just it just came out came out really well and, and I'm really glad that uh, uh, it, it came out as easy as it did. Um, as, as far as the touring goes and everything, um, that's just something that we all do very naturally. Um, it's, it's, it's one thing that we all love to do is just play live. And so, so it's, the, the whole thing's just a very nice fit. It really is. Uh, now you did mention uh, Kenny Richards and he did pass away earlier this year he was exceptionally important to the beginning of the band. Uh, talk mm-hmm. to me about how important he was and how instrumental he was in getting autographed sort of out of, off the ground and moving. And just what are some of your best memories of, uh, of Kenny? Well, um, how he got the whole band moving was, you know, we had done a demo tape with Andy Jones, um, who, you know, Glenn Johnson and Andy Johns of Led Zeppelin fame and the Stones, and they worked with yep. John Lennon and everything, so they had a very good track record. And um, Andy Johns wanted us to go into the studio and cut a demo, and so we did, and uh, Kenny played that for David Lee Roth. Uh, they were like jogging partners. They met every morning at 8.30 in the morning with jogging up Sunset Strip, and and uh, so he played it for him, and David absolutely loved it. He loved the demo, and said, hey, why don't you guys come out and tour for us with us on the 1984 tour? And we didn't know if we really could at that point because all of us were playing in bands. I, me and the keyboard player were playing, 
uh, with uh, Holly Penfield on Dreamland Records. Uh, Steve Fluck was playing with a group called Silver Condor and Columbia Records. And Kenny was playing in a group called The Coup on A&M Records. And Randy was playing with Leah Ford. So we kind of all had to decide, well, you know, can we do this? Can we go out for a while? And we, we thought, yeah, we can do this. We can go out for a few months and, and do it. But we still had, you know, uh, you know, ties with the other bands we were playing in at the time and responsibilities. So we thought, well, we can go out for three months. We're finished recording with the other bands and everything. So we went out and the crowd reaction opening up for Van Halen was really good. And, um, we started to get record deals, you know, and, and, uh, you know, offers from all these record labels. And so we thought, wow, this is our own thing. We were not playing with another project. You know, we could, we could make this our own thing. And so we decided to quit other bands and, and do this and, uh, went back to LA and recorded some more songs and, and, uh, put together the album for RCA. We ended up signing with RCA backstage at Madison square gardens. What a, what a Cinderella story that is. And, um, anyway, with Kenny, you know, he was very instrumental in putting that whole thing together, which led to our, our signing. And it was his character, like if you, if you watch in the early videos, you know, him biting a beer can in half, smashing it on his head and everything, and being way over the top. That's what his character was. He was always way over the top with everything. And he had just an incredible sense of humor, and very quick and very witty. And, and uh, anyway, he's missed. He's missed Julie. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I can say that from a fan perspective as well, he's very missed, because the uh, early autograph albums like Sign In Please and all that, just just phenomenal stuff. Um yeah. Before we get to sign in please because that came out in 84. You know, in 81, 82, 83, you were sort of doing the circuit go- going to these other bands. You had auditioned for Kiss if I'm not mistaken. Um Well, to- what happened was okay. the the day that we signed with um with RCA um, I, I went home and, uh, you know, we had, we had had a few beers and stuff celebrated. I went home and then, uh, I got a call at like one o'clock in the morning, um, Pacific standard time and answered it. And, uh, there was a guy on the other side and he said, hello, is this Steve Lynch? And I said, yes, it is. And he said, well, this is Paul Stanley from kiss. And, and I hung up the phone. I thought it was just somebody playing a joke on me. <laughs> and then he called back and it was him actually. He had gotten a demo that I'd done through Mike Varney from Guitar Player Magazine, yeah. and he loved my playing, and he wanted to fly me out to New York, and he wanted me to audition, and I said, Paul, I'm really sorry. I would love to do this, but I just signed a deal, a three-album deal with RCA today. You know, <laughs> And so he was a little let down by that. It's, it's like, you know, because nobody turns down Kiss, but I, I did because I basically had to. Um, and uh, so, you know, it, it just uh, worked out that, you know, that uh, I, I think it was for the better because I was able to do, you know, something of my own with my own writing and input. I don't know if I would have had that chance with Kiss, you know, I'm not sure. But uh, yeah. it, was a, it was a nice compliment, you know, to be able to be offered by them to join the group. It certainly was. Did you at any time um, rehearse with them or was it really just a sort of phone call and say, listen, I can't do it, unfortunately? No, it was, it was, just, it was just the phone call, yeah. We never did rehearse with them, no. Oh, that would have been cool. Um, so let, let's talk about Sign In, please, uh, and getting that first album together, because the hit, of course, Turn Up the Radio, is ubiquitous. When you think of classic rock or hard rock or melodic rock, you know, you think of Pour Some Sugar on Me, and you think, but Turn Up the Radio is right in there. So um, talk to me about putting together that album and that single, how it came together. Well, um, 
we were in the studio and we actually, when we went in to record the demo tape with Andy Jones, it was called Turn Up the Tape Machine. But then we we changed it to radio because we thought tape machine, you know, that's, that's kind of, um, at least that was one of the lyrics in it. I think that we had radio in it also, but we decided to just call it Turn Up the Radio. Now, RCA didn't want us to put it on the album. They wanted the song Send Her to Me to be the single. And we argued with them. We said, no, 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 no. Look, at Turn Up the Radio, every station's going to love it. Every The, the people are going to love it out there because they're going to reach over and turn up the radio. And, and sure enough, as soon as we put it out, I mean, we, we had to do, go in and do all these uh, um, call uh, letters for all the stations um, like WXPZ and, and uh, KLOS and all that. We, we went in for two eight-hour days and did all the call letter stations for the United States and Canada. And um, it, it just turned out that they all wanted us to say, this is autograph, turn it up, KLOS, rock on, you know. And, and so we went in there, we did it all, you know, in, in two eight-hour days, you know. So it was, it was a lengthy process, but it was well worth it because it felt more personalized for the record company, or to the um, radio stations. And uh, no, that song is just, how can you go wrong with Turn Up the Radio? I mean, radio stations absolutely loved it. And so then when, once it became a hit, then RCA said it was their idea. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course it's their idea. Um, so yeah. so let, let me talk about, about Steve Plunkett because, like I said, you know, the voice of, of a band is, is usually tied into it. When you got back together, did you invite him to come back? And Yes. Okay. So, yeah, he was invited, but... Um, but he said, you know, he said, you know, my voice just can't do that anymore. Um, and he said, I'm really busy with the television and the, uh, the, the movie soundtrack stuff. And we, we understood. And he, he, he declined. He gracefully declined and wished us the best. But in uh, 2003, he released an autograph album called Buzz. Uh, when you're sitting at home and you see this come out, what is your reaction to that album and sort of autograph 2.0? Um, I looked at that, like that wasn't really autographed. That was a Steve Plunkett solo album because it was just him. Um, he was just basically using the name, but it was all written by him, co-produced by him. It was basically all just him. So, um, I didn't really pay much, much mind to it. You know, I just figured, well, he's using the name autograph, but it really doesn't have anything to do with autograph. It's a Steve Plunkett solo album. It really was. And, um, you know. Um, Missing Pieces in 97 was a collection of leftover demos from the late 80s. Um, Correct. Talk to me about Missing Pieces and why were those sort of demos never used? There was supposed to be this other album, this fourth album, never materialized. Um, Talk to me about the, the, the events surrounding why the label didn't put out the fourth album and why we had to wait almost 10 years to get these songs. Well, um, what happened was um, we were doing those demos for Epic Records at the time. Our deal with RCA was up, and we didn't want to go back with them. We wanted to uh, go with a different label, and Epic was uh, showing a lot of interest, and we were showing a lot of interest in them. So these demos were basically for Epic Records. Now, Epic Records, um, at the time, you know, there was, it was this, we're talking like 88, 88, 89, when we did these recordings. You know, it was after the, after the third album came out. You know, in 87, loud and clear. Um, but they were just demos for Epic. That's all they, they, they were meant to be. Um, but then uh, Epic kind of pulled out at the last minute because, and then we were kind of like wishy-washy about it, whether we wanted to keep going 
because the whole grunge thing in Seattle was coming in and, and, uh, you know, but we could tell the eighties thing was just, was just falling to the wayside. So, um, I was really hesitant on wanting to do another autograph album because I was more interested in doing my solo work. Um, so what happened was once, once, uh, Epic lost interest, then I, I decided to leave the band and pursue my solo album, which I did. Um, what happened at that point, um, was Randy quit. And then the, 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 you know, then the band just kind of fell apart. We just decided to throw our, our hats in right there at that time. And so later on, Steve Puckett released it, um, you know, um, unfortunately without mine or Randy's uh, permission, because we had written, you know, like I had written seven out of the 11 songs on it. So I was a bit disappointed that he, he released it without my permission because I would like to have gone in and, and, uh, remastered it, of course. And, uh, and uh, was very disappointed that uh, he released it without even letting us know that he was going to do that. Um, but anyway, um, it happened, and I, there were some songs on there that I was actually very proud of, and I wish that we could have put them out on another album. I just don't like the way it was released. Well, speaking of that, then, if you are very proud of those songs and they're not the way you want, is there a chance that you may rework them for down the line and say, hey, listen, these are my songs, and I want to put them out the right way? Yes, absolutely, and I've been thinking about that as well. Just um, putting them out there and, and um, going into the studio and remastering them, and and uh, you know doing them justice. So uh, that's that's definitely a possibility in the future. Now, between missing pieces and buzz, is there any animosity towards Steve? Where you say, "Hey, hey, dude." What is this? Or is it like, hey, listen, it's, that's the biz, and that's the biz, and say la vie? Well, um, because of the fact that we were friends, um, we weren't just business partners, um, that's what kind of caught, caught me off guard, because I was really um, thinking about, like, why would you do this without asking anybody's permission, you know, especially mine, since I put so much work into it. And um, I was really taken aback by that. Um, yeah, there was a little bit of animosity there. I mean, we're still friends, but I, I look at it like there was, there was some definite business dealings that I didn't approve of. And, um, I was, I was very disappointed that he would even think about doing these things without, uh, without me being involved. I can imagine. Now, um, loud and clear, of course, was uh, the album that came out in 87. Um, talk to me about that album and, you know, the, the band had turned up the radio on the, uh, you know, on the first one. And so, but you never sort of caught on in the same way that a Def Leppard caught on or a Bon Jovi caught on. Uh, what was sort uh-huh. of the missing ingredient with Autograph? Was it the record label not pushing it properly? Were yes. The song? Okay. It so. was. Um, what had happened was Bob Summers had died. Um, okay. He was the president of RCA. Right. And he died of AIDS. Bob Buziak came in and took over. They fired 50% of their staff. And what happened is all of the, the, the bands or solo artists that were putting out albums at that time, it really hurt them. It wasn't only us. It was Kenny Rogers. It was the Eurythmics. It was the Pointer Sisters. Uh, it was Mr. Mister. They all suffered horribly from RCA coming in and, and replacing 50% of their personnel. Because during that time of our album release, they were training people on how to promote uh, um, you know, new, new product, you know, and, and, you know, the, the existing product. And it just, it, it was a clash of time, you know, it just didn't work out at all. And it was very unfortunate for us and the other artists that suffered because of it. So, um, it was just one of those things where, 
what what do you do? We were constantly harping on them, like like, hey, get 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 some publicity on this album because Loud and Clear is actually my favorite album out of the three. I mean, I love the first one and I love the second one, but um, as far as the writing and the production go, the third album, Loud and Clear, is definitely my favorite. It's, it's a great album, and of course, uh, Andy Johns, the uh, the great producer, has as you mentioned before, all these bands that he's worked with, um, and he unfortunately passed away um, in two thousand thirteen. Talk to me about yes. working with him because he really had a vision and had a, a, a purpose when he made albums. Um, what were you, you know, coming in uh, sort of a younger guy and you have this experienced producer. What do you learn from him? What do you notice from him? Um, just talk to me about working with Andy. Well, he took more time to, to, to get sounds from you know, to get particular drum sounds and everything. He really worked it and really uh, made sure that every, everything, he was very meticulous on, on the sound of every instrument, every drum, every guitar sound and everything. And so I really paid attention to him when he was doing that. And then, of course, during the mix, I listened to the way that he mixed. And that was that was really important, you know, the, to get the right kind of mix down. He was so tedious. And, um, you know, he was his mind worked so intricately when he was... Uh, doing the mix. Uh, we did have a clash though, when he wanted me to like, I had all my guitar solos already ready to go. And that's the way I am when I go into the studios. I, I, I like work and work and work like crazy on my guitar solos so that I don't repeat myself in solos so that I come up with something unique for each song. And he says, Oh, Lynchy, I want you to try this little blues riff here instead of doing like a rig. And I said, Andy, that's not going to work. You know? And so we clashed big time during that time. I eventually kicked him out of the studio for a couple of days until I had all my solos down. And then when he came back and listened, then he said, Oh, that's really brilliant. <laughs> you know, so, so it's like, he wasn't getting it when I was playing it in front of him. But then when I, I recorded it and he came back in and listened to it after a few days, he went, Oh, okay. That's, that's really good. I can see what you were, where you were going with this. But, um, I think he was just trying to throw guitar parts in that he was used to. And he wasn't used to my kind of playing. You know, which was much much different than a, a blues bass guitarist. It really was. Now, talk to me about your guitar playing. In the sense that, do you uh, play for the song, or do you fit the song around your solos? Oh, I play for the song. Right, because that, that that's sort of the most important thing, right? Yeah, ab that's absolutely. That's that's what I think. Um, some of them, I just you know, they were more like melody lines that were kind of doing something similar to what the vocals were doing. Um, I just would compliment that because I'd try and try for a solo and I went, this song doesn't need a solo. It needs more of a melody line and that's okay. You know, and you listen to other artists at the time, you know, um, you know, even with some Van Halen stuff, uh, Eddie would lay down, you know, some melody lines rather than solos, you know, that complimented the song. And I, I would good for him because, you know, that, that's something that you really have to pay attention to. Sometimes you just don't need a, a a full out solo. Sometimes you need something that just more complements the song itself. And that's, that's being able to hold back and, and, and really paying attention to what, what's going to, you know, come across to the audience, you know, and to the listener. Um, and, and what you do is you try to look for the best thing that way. You don't, you don't have to show your yayas every time you do it. Uh, you play with a song, you know, and have to do a full on out solo. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Now, um, Louder came out 2016, Get Off Your Ass 2017. 
where do we go from here for Autograph? Is it sort of like we've attained our goal and we've put out these albums and we'll play a few shows and we're done? Or are we looking forward to the next next new album? The, you know, what, what sort of the... Oh, we're going we're gonna to absolutely keep writing and, and keep recording and uh, keep touring. I mean, that's the whole thing. Yeah, and hopefully we'll have yeah. you back up here at the at the Brass Monkey in Ottawa because that oh, yeah. show was slamming. I mean, uh, you know, I, I've known Autograph and I'd seen you way back in the day and I just thought, well, well, you know, good band. And then I saw you live and I went, oh, okay, not a good band, a great band, a fucking great band. Right. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> and and I think you. that's the way, uh, I think that's the way you, you do it these days. You win it over with the live show, right? Yes, you do. Absolutely. And that's what we're doing is we're playing a lot of live shows and getting people on board with us because that's the most important thing is to have the fans there. I, I agree. Steve, great pleasure and, uh, you know, continued success. And um, I'm very much looking forward to hearing the entire Get Off Your Ass because it looks like it's going to be a great, great uh, album. Uh, thank you very much, Mitch. Really appreciate it. And we'll be sending you an album then. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay, you bet. Bye-bye. Cheers. Now. Bye-bye. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. There are 120,000 unsolved murder cases in America. It was the next day that I found out from my parents when it happened, that my sister was killed. Each one is called a cold case. Sometimes you have to look really closely to find the evidence. Damn, I, I killed her. Damn it, I killed her. Cold Case Files, the podcast. Garcia is walking into the home of a real monster. I was nervous. I realized what kind of person I was dealing with. It's a goosebump moment. Download new episodes every Tuesday on the Podcast One app or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome back in a little extra Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Uh, I have got Barry Graham Perkis coming up in the next interview. Some of you may know him as Thunderstick. He, of course, was in Samson and an early version of Iron Maiden. He's got a new album called Something Wicked This Way Comes. And you are, I, I am going to say this, you are going to love this interview. He talks about uh, Steve Harris, Iron Maiden, the early days of the metal scene and of course his new album so i'm just going to stop talking and so without further ado here is the one the only thunderstick we are speaking with barry graham perkis also known as thunderstick uh spent well, some time with iron maiden and samson good day uh barry good, good thund- now do, do i call you barry or thunder <laughs> Ah, you can call me Barry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thunderstick is the other guy, you know. He's the guy with the mask on. So uh, I just sort of uh, look at him as the third person. So (laughs) it's Barry you're talking to today. Pleasure to speak with you. And um, we're here to talk about the Something Wicked This Way Comes, a new album by uh, the band Thunderstick. And I have to say, it is absolutely fabulous i mean you, you know sometimes you get these promos sent to you and you go oh my god what is this and i listened to this and i went holy wow this is this is something so congratulations i mean it, it really is a great album so let, let's start with that what what took you so long to get an album made and uh just talk to me about the writing process and assembling these 10 uh, songs okay um well uh 
a long time ago, <laughs> when the when the uh, world was new and uh, Thunderstick existed in a very uh, primate uh, form in 1980s, um, we had um, an album that came out called Beauty and the Beasts. Um, I had a, a young lady that was singing at the time for us. Her name was Jody Valentine. Uh, she was with me for five years and uh, we used to tour and we, we put that album out, Beauty and the Beast, and we had so much other material that was uh, that had been written at that time. Um, but we recorded it, but it never saw the light of day. So skip forward a few years and last year I discovered that uh, somebody wrote to me and told me that he knew Jody because we we separated we went our own way she, she was once my partner as well as um you know the focal point for the band and uh, we we kind of parted company in 19 late late 1980s and uh, this guy got hold of me and he said did you know that Jody had passed away and I didn't. And so we sort of struck up online conversation and it transpired that she had um, she had got early advanced um, Alzheimer's disease and she had been in a home for five years, assisted assisted care home. And it really upset me. The reason being is that uh, he was a, a, a musician himself and he had been visiting her. I put out a load of remastered material of early Thunderstick stuff in 2011, and he he knew this and he bought one, bought one of the CDs. He took it into her to play to her, and um, because of her condition, she didn't even recognise her own voice on the album. And to hear that, I found it really distressing. So after I'd sort of taken all that on board for a while. I started thinking about all the material that we had that would that never actually made it onto an album. And and the more I thought about it, the more I thought it would be a really good and nice thing to as a as a homage to her to actually record the album. But obviously there was no band. Um I was short of uh, a few tracks for an album's worth. And uh, from there on in, I started looking and uh, putting a band together. And uh, what you hear on the album is uh, seven tracks that were, were taken from that time. However, of course, I've completely, um, you know, rearranged them and brought them up to date. But my intention was to try and keep one foot in the past, as well as making it a, a quite a contemporary uh, feel about it for today so if i could get those two things uh, counteracting against each other i thought it, it it is an album of its time as well as an album that is very much up to date and uh, as well as the seven tracks that i had from those days we wrote three new tracks and that uh, is the mainstay of the body of work that you have on that album now you mentioned at the time that there was no band um what is sort of the future now for for Thunderstick? Now that the album's come out, and now that you're you're you know everybody seems very satisfied with the results, is there going to be a Thunderstick album in 2018? Is there going to be a Thunderstick tour? Um, has it motivated you to sort of you know get the machine going again? Yes, yes. In a word, yes. Um, I can't really say as to where we go from here. Um, as I said to you earlier, the, the, the album uh, has been 
for me to uh, hear how it's been received has been quite quite not surprising but very humbling and uh I'm so pleased that people really enjoy it. And, of course, I want to get out there and uh, promote it. Um, the money that I've put together to record the album has been uh, partially my my own investment, as well as we had uh, crowdfunding, pledge music. And uh, I was very surprised at the number of people that came forward and uh, put their money where their mouth is, so to speak, and, and said, yeah, I want to order a copy of the album. And uh, so, therefore, uh, I was able to somewhat gauge what sort of fan base I still have because uh, we're talking about a long time. Between, you know, 30, 30 plus years is a long time. But I know that uh, the band I've got around me now, we are totally capable of going out and putting one hell of a Thunderstick show on. So it's a case of really just watch this space. That is my intention to go out and play live and uh, take and promote the album out there. Talk to me about the Thunderstick persona, because you look back at the early days of New Wave of British heavy metal and you see the imagery and, you know, the leather and the studs and all this. You went that extra distance with the mask and the cage and, and the, the showmanship. Uh, talk to me about developing that persona and how much of it helped the career and how much of it impeded it where people would say, well, that's just ridiculous. Come on, give me a break. Um, <laughs> well, you're, you're really on it there. I mean, right. you've hit the nail on the head, as it were. Um, right. Well, it came about because when I first joined, after I left Maiden, when I was with Maiden, I used to always really love theatrical bands. You know, Kiss was somewhat in their infancy at the time. And, and uh, I, I've always loved bands like the Tubes and, uh, uh, and bands such as that, that Alice, of course, that put on a great show. So I had always sort of painted my face up in different, you know, gold and, and all kinds of weird and wonderful designs on it. And that was when I was with Maiden. By the time that I got to Samson, um, I didn't want to do that anymore. And and the main thing that uh, that really actually put the image into my head was the fact that around that time there was no social media. There was no, um, you know, DVDs or anything like that, no NTV. And all it was was music press publication with, if you were lucky, um, a poster of the band inside that music press. So that, uh, you know, if you had a favorite band, you could stick it on your wall and, and all that kind of thing. But what I found was that most people would know who the singer was, know who the guitarist was because they were down the front of the stage. And then there would be a row of cymbals and a load of hardware on the top of somebody's head, and that would be the drummer. Uh, there were exceptions to the rule, obviously, Keith Moon, people like that, John Bonham, larger-than-life sort of characters. But because I thought that most drummers were faceless, I actually created a faceless drummer. And in doing so, I had to give it a suitable rock and roll name, and that's where Thunderstick came about. Um, as to how it impeded my career... Um, I think that it, at first it was it was really, really good because it was well received and it wasn't viewed to be comical or anything like that. And I hope that I backed it up by being a really good drummer as well, because that was you know the main thing behind it was that I just didn't want to be, oh, it's, it's a gimmick and he can't play properly. Um, at least I had my ability to back it up. 
Um, I don't know if it has actually impeded my career. I couldn't say, but maybe I didn't get the amount of session work or anything like that because at the end of the day, people didn't really know who I was. So if I'd have appeared on Samson with, you know, Barry Graham Perkis and a picture of me, then maybe it would had been different. But um, I think it, uh, it lent for me to put a nice theatrical band together and be able to do that and take it out on stage. Yeah, and, and I'm from that school of theatrics. I grew up on Kiss and Alice Cooper, and you just can't beat that. New York Dolls, of no. course. Yeah. Um, the early Iron Maiden days, uh, 77, 78, pre-80s, let's call it. Um, Steve Harris, he's the genius behind the band, if that's, if that's the way to say it. Talk to me about working with him, and was he as focused back then as he is perceived to be right now? Um, I would, I, I suppose, yes. Okay. I couldn't really, I couldn't really see it. Um, other than the fact that, you know, it's, it's with the benefit of hindsight, I can go back and say, right, what he did do was he used to come to my house. Um, I, I wasn't an, e, an East end Londoner. So, uh, I was, <laughs> I was a little bit uh, out of my league because I came from Southeast London. So I wasn't a, an East ender. Um, and he used to come up, uh, over to South London and would come to my house. And I had a room that was, uh, soundproofed and we'd go through bass and drum parts there. Now I'd never done that until I actually joined Maiden. I'd been in lots of different bands. Um, I, when I was, uh, when I was 18, I, I joined a band and moved to Sicily of all places. And we toured right the way across the whole of the Mediterranean. And with bands like that, I'd rehearse as a band. I'd never sat down with a bass player and gone, well, you know what? We're going to go through the bass and drum parts. So there was that focus there. Yes. But it was very much work as usual, you know, trying, trying to abandon its infancy, trying to get better, trying to get slicker and, uh, you know, try and, and be as good as you possibly can. So uh, that would kind of be the only, the only thing that really sticks out as being really focused was that, that, uh, bass and drum thing working that out yeah um there was a point in your career where you had to choose between iron maiden and samson they you know talk to me about that choice and eventually deciding to go with samson and have you know uh, clive go go with maiden um is that something okay. you look back at with regret is that something that just it absolutely made sense at the time um no, you can't look at it you would be really you know sort of beaten up Right, Beat, you're beating yourself up if you go back all the time and go, oh, I regret this and right, regret that. I mean, it is what it is. You made the move and that's it. You commit to it and go ahead. The how the uh, the how it came about was that um, Samson. We did a tour called the Heavy Metal Crusade. Now you've got to think that you've got to remember that we came in on the end tail end of punk, and punk had been all over the place it had been uh, all the agents were booking punk bands and all the record companies were interested in um, in signing up punk bands some of them well you know worthwhile their their record deal definitely so the damned sex pistols bands like that but then alongside that there were there were a lot of also rands you know kind of dross that went with all that and then suddenly there came a point a turning point when the record companies stopped signing those bands and realized that 
that punk had given the industry energy, but it it hadn't necessarily given it, you know, competent playing musicians. So what happened was that we did this heavy metal crusade and all these kids came out of nowhere that had been waiting for, it, it was a new terminology as well then, heavy metal had never been termed as such. It had always been rock music or hard rock or anything like that. Um, the people that we listened to were the, was the supposed dinosaurs, e.g. Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, all those, you know, Uriah Heap, all those kind of bands. So anyway, we did this tour. And uh, before we started it, the management that we were under said, I said, well, we need some good support acts. And because I'd come from Maiden, I said, you know what? There's a band that I used to be in that would be just great for it. So we took on them. We took on another band called Angel Witch. And out we went. We had a a hard rock uh, DJ that was playing all the up-to-date kind of uh, contemporary rock bands of the time. And there were a lot coming out, you know, so that was all good. And at the end of the tour, it was uh, we finished in winter, Christmas time, just coming up, day before Christmas. And I was at home, and the phone went, and it was Steve Harris. And he said, uh, do you fancy rejoining the band? And now, by this time, the Thunderstick image was really starting to kick in this country. I had a front cover of a, a music publication called Sounds, and, uh, you know, it, they put on it, they splashed across it, is this the new face of British heavy metal? And then we had a two-page um, inside the uh, the magazine, we had a two-page uh, pull-out, and that was when they first termed the uh, Kerrang, and they first said new wave of British heavy metal bands. So, of course, I was all over it, and Steve, of course, didn't want that image. He just wanted me as a drummer. So he said, well... I'll leave it with you because it's Christmas. So we'll get together after Christmas, a couple of days after Christmas. So we did that. Um, And, uh, you know, I was deliberating because we were just about to go in and do a new Samson album head on. And as I say, the Thunderstick thing was really happening. And um, I just went uh, and sat back and had my Christmas and just, oh, you just ruined my Christmas because I was deliberating. Do I this? Do I that? So I went and played with them, and um, Rod Smallwood, their manager, was there. And before I started playing with them, he said, now, you realize this band is going to be bigger than Led Zeppelin? And I thought at the time, well, that's really nice for the manager to believe in the band that much, obviously. Little did I know. (laughs) But I played with them, and Steve. after we'd played, Steve said, well, and I went, I still really can't say, Steve. And they were pushed really hard for a um you know they wanted a decision right there and then so i said can you give me a couple of days to think about it so you know they were a little bit okay all right fine so i went away and then what happened was that uh, i kind of picked up where i was with samson we went straight into the studios i didn't get a return phone call from steve i didn't make a, a call back to steve and, uh, and then one day we were in the studio and the telephone went and it was one of our, our friends, a guy called John McCoy. And he went, I just heard who's got the new gig with, um, with Iron Maiden. And uh, our question was, well, and he went, it's Clive Burr. Now, Clive Burr obviously had been Samson's drummer before I had joined them. And uh, 
So we were in a, a stupid situation for, only for a short while, but he was gigging with Iron Maiden with Samson on his drum cases, <laughs> and I, vice versa, was was gigging with uh, Samson with Iron Maiden stenciled all over my cases. So, yeah, it was a bit of a weird thing. But uh, I, I kind of guess, you know, they wanted a, a decision, and because I was so undecided, it was, okay, move on, on to the next. So that was it. That's great. Now... Um, you mentioned head on the Samson album, so let's let me go there. I was gonna I was gonna do new wave of British heavy metal, but let's go to Samson. Um, Iron, not Iron Maiden. Bruce Dickinson comes in as the vocalist, Bruce Bruce. Um, talk to me about that because he wasn't the Bruce Dickinson that we know and love today. He was just this scrawny little kid. Yeah. Excuse the expression, but <laughs> that's your terminology, not mine. But right. There you go. <laughs> right. But but I mean that that that's sort of what he was. He was an unknown entity, basically, and he comes in and um and his voice wasn't where what it is today. It was certainly more um I don't want to say immature, but it wasn't it wasn't the Bruce oh, today. Is. Yeah, but precisely, you you're right because obviously, a voice will it mature. will uh, mature right. with the, with the individual that's uh, singing. Yeah, of course. So so he was a young kid. Sorry, go on. Well, just just talk to me about having him come in there and having a a vocalist change, and okay. and and what was it like? You know, did did you see anything in him in terms of vocals where you go, okay, this guy's got something, or was this just like? Uh, all right, well, let's just make this album and see how no, it goes. No, 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 it, okay. it didn't happen like that. It happened that Paul and I, Paul Sampson, and I went out for a drink one night and we went to a pub um, somewhere in Kent. And in that pub, there was a uh, a band, a pub band playing, playing their gig. The only place that they could fit the stage in, because you're talking about a very small venue, was unfortunately for them right in front of the toilets. So there's this guy and he's leaping about and he's going absolutely crazy and he's uh, digging at the at the audience and making little quips at various people within the audience. And then the band would go into an instrumental, uh, instrumental and uh, this guy would disappear into the toilet. And then he'd come out again a few minutes later dressed as something else completely different. And he started jibing at me. And um, because of presumably because the way I was dressed or the way I looked or whatever. So next time that he went into the toilet was during a break. I think they were doing a couple of sets, the band. So he'd gone in there to change and we both went in after him. And he <laughs> he thought at the time that because he had been poking fun at me and jiving, that we'd gone in there to hit him or something like that, <laughs> beat him up. But it wasn't the case. We turned around and said, look, you know, we're a band, blah, blah, blah. And would you at all be interesting and, uh, interested in coming down and trying out for this band? And he said, yes, but I'm currently at university. He was studying a, a history degree. And uh, he said, it's, uh, I can't do it at the moment, but I would dearly love to come down and have a tryout. So what happened is we were still out there gigging and uh, finishing off our own little tour. And uh, Bruce used to get up for the encore and uh, do the encore with us. And then when he did actually pass out from, um, from uni, he then came to the band and we had uh, quite a bit of material that we'd been working on. He had some material as well, and we put the, the, the two uh, two lots of material together, 
And within a week, we had uh, written what was head on. And uh, so, yes, he was. Uh, I did the vocal tracks with him because we produced it ourselves. And um, I was the one that, uh, you know, sat with him and did did all the vocal tracks for head on, as well as the sound engineer. And you could tell that he had something and he was he, 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 even doing ad lib stuff in the studio where he would, you know, go off on one and, and, and he'd start doing this ad libbing and he could make rhymes up on the spot. And you just thought, wow, the ability to be able to do that, it was really funny. And it was, you know, really quite amazing as well to see him do it. And uh, so, yes, he, he was quite immature. He came, um, we call him Bruce Bruce because it actually came from a, a Monty Python sketch and uh, where, where a lot of Australians were talking to each other. Right. Uh, and they're all called Bruce. <laughs> and uh, this guy comes in to join them and he says, what's your name? And he says, well, my name's Adam. And he goes, oh, dear, no, I can't have that. Um, we call you Bruce, all right? So that's how it came about. We called him Bruce Bruce. Um, by the time that we got to Shock Tactics, though, he found his craft. And um, I think this is a personal view, but I think... I know with the body of work he's done with Iron Maiden, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the definitive Bruce voice was the voice that you would hear on that uh, third Samson album, Shock Tactics. I mean, that's where he was really coming into his own right and he knew that he was good. Yeah, and, and Shock Tactic is is a great, uh, great album. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that album because you also had Tony Platt produce it, who's who's gone on to do work with pretty much everybody i mean he's yeah, yeah, everybody, you know yeah. he's, he's engineered and, and worked on sessions with the rolling stones led zeppelin um bob marley paul mccartney i mean no slouch no um, no <laughs> i mean uh, he he came about we, we looked at a couple of other producers when we went in to do this third album and um he came about because i believe it was at the time there was a link between him and us with the publishing company that wanted to publish the uh, the material so he came along he had just come off the sessions um i think it was sound engineering he'd just come off the back in black sessions so when he came to samson we ran through all the stuff for him he would come down with a little you know portable cassette player or whatever it was and um, we'd run through the material. We spent two weeks in pre-production, and that is where we literally took it back, all the material back to the bare bones of it and rearranged it. And um, and then we went into the studio, and that was it. It was great to work with. Um, we worked at really quite a, a speed as well. We got, it, got the album done quite quickly. And um, because of that, because of the fact that he had been working with ACDC, I think to a certain extent, um, Samson on that album, on the uh, on the um, third album, Shot Tactics, I think we do sound in that vein. I wouldn't say that we're anything like ACDC, but our material for that album was very much aimed at that market. And we were very similar in that vein. Yeah, and of course he had worked on those uh, ACDC albums with Mutt Lang, who uh, went on to great success with uh, Def Leppard, and then yeah. um, moved on to the country kind of thing, which is yeah, interesting. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, before I before we we wrap up, uh, Paul Sampson, uh, of course, passed away in two thousand two. Uh, 
Talk to me a little bit about Paul, because he, he was a special, um, you know, special unique? person. Yeah, unique. That, that's what I'm looking for. Um, yeah. just, just give me a little sort of memory about Paul. Okay, real quick then. Paul and I, I used to play in one band. Paul was in another band. We were both kids, as it were. And we used to rehearse in a place that was a farm in the middle of nowhere. And because it was nice and cheap and because we could be nice and loud and nobody would worry about that, um, we would pass each other. He he leaving with his band and me coming in with my band and it'd be, hi, how you doing and all that. And, you know, and that was that. And then a couple of years later, I suddenly turn up for an audition with the band and I walked through the door and I went, Oh my God, you, and he went, Oh my God, you. So, you know, that was it. It was uh, almost preordained that it was going to happen. So Paul and I were, we had a quite a, a special kind of relationship, not only as a, as a outside of the band, but also within the band, we had Chris Aylmer that was a bass player that anchored everything to the floor and it enabled me to work off of Paul, much the same as uh, Keith Moon used to work with um, Pete Townsend. And so we had a very special relationship there. In actual fact, when Bruce first left Samson, he said um, that when I left the band, the unpredictability disappeared. And sometimes it was it was it went wrong and, it, and that unpredictability came to bite you in the bum. But uh, other times it was really special and you would be able to put something special together. And Paul and I were really quite close. I mean, uh, yeah, we knew each other for years and I miss him a lot. And he, yes, he was unique as a guitarist. We loved all these three piece bands um, such as Grand Funk Railroad. Uh, Mountain, especially Leslie West, um, and uh, then we had English bands that we used to listen to a band called the Groundhogs, and 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 of course Hendrix. So we had a love of that three piece, and we were really able to just sort of work off of each other. And listening to him, at times it was like playing with at least two guitarists, uh, and you just think, how the hell does he do all that amount? And he would have all those special intonations, you know, and uh, between the chords. And that's what made him a special player. He never got recognized for what he was capable of doing, which is a shame. But, I mean, you know, I, how many other musicians are out there that we know nothing about at this moment in time yeah. that, are, you know, have got a special, a special gift and, and yet we'll never, ever know of them because they'll never get founded. But Paul, yeah, a special guy for me. He really was. And and you mentioned a special guitarist in that. Uh, you did do some work with Bernie Torme, who did a, a very brief stint with Ozzy. Um, there's yeah. another great talent, Bernie. Uh, I interviewed oh, him but... about six months ago. Great guy. Oh, man. he's. I, I've known Bernie since 79. And um, he, he's one of those guitarists that, it just sounds as though his guitar has a life of its own and all Bernie does is try to control it. <laughs> I mean, his, his style of playing is so special. It, it would do him a disservice by just saying, oh, he dive bombs a lot because he doesn't. He, he has all those harmonics going on and, and, and it really is as though the guitar, the guitar itself takes on a life of its own and it's just squealing its way through the set. And even he's, you know, because he's a, a personal friend of mine, 
I still am astounded. I still sit there and watch him and go, how the hell does he do all that? And he, as you said, he's a really nice guy. To be, to be able to go on stage after that terrible, you know, terrible thing of, of Randy Rhodes losing his life and, and what he meant to Ozzy. And Bernie learnt the material on the plane going out to the States. And the next night they were on stage in front of God knows how many. You know, that's a special guy. that, that It takes a lot to do that. Yeah, and uh, when I did that interview with him back, I think it was in April, it was just, just a great chat. I mean, he has some great, great um, stories. I'll finish with these two questions. Um, 99, 2000, you did some reunion gigs with um, Samson. It led to an album, of course, the Live in London 2000. Yeah. Uh, just talk to me quickly about doing those shows, and is that something that you'd like to do again? Would, you know, would you like to do a, a Samson Live in London 2018 album? <laughs> you know, it, I, it would be impossible because neither Paul or Chris are with us. So no, but but that would be really okay. But I mean, um, no, that was good. The the, the um, reunions were great. We did some reunion gigs as a three piece which was uh, we did Japan, and that was really good fun. And then we started working as a four-piece, and uh, after Bruce had left and gone to Maiden, they changed direction and, and really wanted, went more so as a blues band rather than a, uh, a rock band. It was a blues rock band when they got Nicky Moore in to sing for them. And so for me to be able to do those reunion gigs with Nicky Moore, we did a, a big German festival called Wacom, and uh, we, as you've rightly said, we, we did that Astoria gig and um, recorded that. So it was like two styles within that band, which was amazing because after I'd gone and they'd gone off on this, you know, different route and uh, we did some of that material that they'd recorded with, uh, with Nicky and we did some of the material that when I and Bruce were with the band. So it was a, a very special thing, yes, to do that. And a, a lot of people came and were so happy to see us. It was great. Yeah, and, and by the way, I meant no disrespect to the members that passed away. I was thinking more of the brand Samson going on. and, and uh, Well, it, it, do, it, right. it does. My, you know, my long-term tech and, and brother-in-arms, a guy called Rob Grain, he runs the Samson estate. They're, they're putting out a lot of uh, reissues at the moment, and um, you know, they're, they're all, the, all the back catalogue is now available as box sets and what have you so it's all out there and it, it, it perpetuates the name of samson i mean a lot of people in in the states and uh, and also in canada and, and what have you they you know they come to they write to me and they say oh man wish we'd have we'd seen samson but at least we can give them something in as much as the material is out there so yeah yeah, anyway. Um, and, and then I'll finish with the um, new wave of British heavy metal. There, there, there seems to be, you know, if you look back historically, that it was some kind of huge camaraderie. Sort of we're all in this together, whether you were part of Ethel the Frog or Girl School or Diamond Head. Or it, it, was that the scene? I mean, was it a sort of a, a fraternity that, that just grew and grew and grew? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, you know, just refer back to my, my answer of earlier that, everybody within that movement had been kind of subdued and been somewhat underground because of punk and punk had happened and it had just taken over the whole of the industry. And, you know, it had a stranglehold, whereas there was loads of other bands that had taught themselves how to play by listening to prog rock bands such as yes and Genesis and all those kind of bands. 
and so they regarded themselves a little better than the um you know than the the kind of punk bands that you had on the circuit so yes there was a sudden emergence of these of these bands and what's more there was an audience to play to as well because these kids came out of nowhere and then they'd start putting together their denim jackets and they they wore them with pride as though it was a sort of battle dress with all the the band's patches all over them and what have you so yeah at the time we knew we knew that we were part of something um, I didn't obviously think that, you know, 30 years after the event or whatever, we would be looking back on those days with such uh, reverence. But, uh, you know, it was, yeah, it was something special. It was a, a really nice movement to be because all the bands just sort of got together and, you know, you were happy to see each other out on the circuit. And you were just happy to be out there doing it. Yeah. And, well, most of us look back at it with uh, reference. The the guys in Def Leppard are, uh, do their best to pretend they were never part of it, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which okay. is, I can understand that, yeah. Which is too bad. And uh, I, I quickly mentioned Ethel the Frog. If, if folks out there listening haven't <laughs> heard, if they haven't heard that, that album is great. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a great album, and nobody knows yeah. about it, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, Barry, a great pleasure. Uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes is out uh, go buy it it is it is definitely worth your time um great pleasure today thank you for all the stories mitch it's been a pleasure as well from this end just say hi to everybody um if you do go out and get the album i hope you love it and uh yeah just stay stay there i can be contacted on my facebook thunderstick on facebook so uh please come and say hi yeah, let's, let, let's plug that real quick. It is facebook.com forward slash Thunderstick official. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Uh, thank That's you. That's it. Great pleasure. Thank you very much, Rich. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye now. Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue, public works, other first responders and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue repair and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.